Good morning, everyone. It is good to be with you again, and it is the Christmas season. How many of you have finished your Christmas shopping? Oh, there's like three, four hands. Okay, so I guess the majority of us are a little bit more of the last minute kind of gift people. I mean, it's still early, so there's, there's some time. Uh, I prefer to get it done early, uh, but this year, I don't know if it's the weather's a little bit warmer uh, or what, but Christmas is kind of sneaking up on me this year. It's, it's like, here, here it comes. My wife and I are frantically going, okay, how can we, how can we figure out what we're getting for everyone and, and figure that out? Well, as uh, I was thinking about this message a little bit as we're kind of beginning the Christmas season uh, and also kind of having those conversations in my home about are we, what are we going to be giving uh, our kids and our family for Christmas, I actually thought to look a little bit into the history of where the concept of gift giving came. I actually had never really done that. Uh, and so it was actually something that happened uh, about 300 years after Jesus, that the idea of gift giving became quite synonymous with the Christmas season. In fact, originally, gift giving wasn't uh, done on December 25th, it was actually done on New Year's Day. Uh, that about 300 years after Jesus in, in Roman areas, they would celebrate by giving gifts on New Year's Day, which, you know, kind of a new beginning, I can understand that. But it was about the year 336, 336 AD, when December 25th became established uh, as the date that we commemorated the birth of Christ. And the tradition of gift giving then shifted from New Year's Day to December 25th. And some of the shift occurred because of the, the element of the story of the wise men giving gifts to their future king, Jesus. But there was another aspect of the story that also caused that to shift, and it was the story of St. Nicholas. That in the fourth century, around that time, St. Nicholas was a Christian bishop, and he was known as a gift giver. And that slowly became part of the tradition, that we have all the way back to the biblical story of the wise men giving gifts. We then also have the story of St. Nicholas. But there was actually something that was connected to the giving of gifts at Christmas, even before St. Nicholas, even uh, in, in the culture before Jesus came, that in the Roman culture, they actually had the concept of giving gifts even before Christ. And the Romans ruled the world, but the language that was spoken in that time was the language of Greek. And the word that is associated with the giving of gifts or with a gift in the Greek language is the word charis, charis. Uh, and that's simply, the simplest definition of that word is gift, but it also carries with it the idea of a gift that is not earned, a gift that is undeserved, one that is freely given. And so even before St. Nicholas, even before the birth story of Christ, into the culture that Christ was going to come, there was an idea that gifts could be given. And so if you were living in that, that Roman culture where they spoke Greek, if you were celebrating your birthday, you might receive a birthday charis. Or if you were to exchange gifts among your family, it would be said that you are giving a charis to one another. Well, 
I don't know if you're familiar with that word charis at all, but that actually is a word that the biblical writers embraced as well. That they took the word that was common in the Roman culture, in the Greek language, and they began to utilize it to talk about what Christ eventually does. And the Apostle Paul and others, when they translate the Greek word charis, they actually translate it to the word that we're familiar with, the word grace. And today I want to actually talk to you about this idea of a gift. It is the Christmas season, uh, and I want to talk to you about this gift of charis, the gift of grace that comes to us during the Christmas season that didn't begin with St. Nicholas. It didn't begin with certainly the materialistic way that we celebrate Christmas now uh, of the giving of gifts, but it actually was built into the fabric of the culture that Christ came into in the first century. So this word, charis, that's translated gift, it represents this idea that God gives a gift to people through his son. And the apostle Paul adopted this word that when salvation is talked about, when the, the free gift that we are given through faith in Christ, when it is talked about by the apostle Paul and others, it is described as a free gift of grace. So the first scripture that I wanna look at this morning is in Titus, Titus chapter two, that we can see that the very first thing that grace does in Titus chapter two, verse 11, is that grace is a gift that saves. It's a gift that saves. And this is the way that we know about grace more than any other way is that it actually brings salvation. So in Titus chapter two, verse 11, it tells us that the grace of God has appeared. If you were to look at that verse in Greek, it would say the charis of God has appeared. Would almost be saying the gift, the free gift of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Now we know that that gift of grace that was Jesus in the flesh. That when Jesus himself came, he was the embodiment of grace. But this gift that saves includes so much more than just Jesus coming or than just our salvation that the way that the biblical authors use this phrase of grace, they use it just like a gift. That if you were to receive this gift of grace, you wouldn't you wouldn't set it up on the shelf and just admire the beauty of the, of the wrapping. You wouldn't just think of how beautiful that bag is. When you receive a gift, the, the natural response to that is you want to open the gift. I mean, could you imagine Christmas morning with a bunch of children if they just sat and stared at the gifts under the tree, but they never actually proceeded to open them? That would be a little anticlimactic, especially for the kids, right? They would be like... That's some nice wrapping paper, mom, thanks. Really, really appreciate the extra effort with the bow and the ribbon, okay? Great job. But when we get a gift, we are meant to explore that. We are meant to open that. And the gift that God gives us through grace is meant to be explored. The gift that saves includes a lot of things. And when you come upon the word grace in scripture, it is representing this container, this gift that brings with it so many of the other things that we've come to value in our salvation. 
That if you open up this gift, you know, very quickly, you realize there's some things that are included in this. That we, when we receive grace, we also receive the forgiveness of sins, right? That with grace, that gift comes the forgiveness of sins. If we have the gift, we also have the forgiveness of sins. Our past sins have been wiped away. We are washed whiter than snow. He casts our sin as far as the east is from the west. He will remember our sins no more. That's part of the gift that saves. We also find that there's some other things connected here. We have the idea that righteousness is given as a part of this gift. Paul, in his letter to the Corinthians, in 2 Corinthians, he says that it's for our sake that Christ, who knew no sin, became sin so that we could become the righteousness of God. He gives this to us as a part of that gift. The gift that saves brings with it righteousness. And of course, Pastor Ray has already referenced this, that we have the Spirit of God living and dwelling in us the moment that we believe, the moment that we get saved. That when we have the gift, God has come to dwell in us. Now, I could probably spend the rest of the morning reaching into this bag and pulling out other things that are included in the gift of salvation. That it is a gift that saves. And Paul and the other biblical writers, they took this concept that was already present in the first century, and they said, this is what Jesus has done for you. That God gave Jesus to us as a free gift, a gift of grace that when we put faith in him, we receive all that he has to offer as a part of this gift. Isn't that good news? Aren't you grateful for the gift that didn't begin with St. Nicholas? It actually began with God's plan of salvation, that he gave his one and only son as the best gift ever. So the first thing that we see about grace and about this gift is that it's a gift that saves. The second thing, and it actually comes from the next part of Titus chapter two, that if we read Titus chapter two, verse 12, we see that this grace that appeared bringing salvation, now what it does is it's training us. It's training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright lives in the present age. The second thing that this gift does for us is it not only saves us, but it trains us. That the second thing is the gift trains. What an amazing God that he didn't just save us. He didn't just secure our future and say, you're going to be with me again one day, but he actually gave us what we need for life on this planet. And the gift, that same gift that saves us, it actually equips us. It trains us. It helps us to grow and to change. As, as that verse says, it helps us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled and upright lives in the present age. You know, the uh, New Testament scholar John Barclay, he says that in this culture, especially for a Jewish mind, that when they would receive a gift, although it, there was no strings attached, 
Although this gift had, uh, was unmerited, it was unearned, it was undeserved, they would get that. But for a Jewish mind, they would know that when you receive a gift that is so good, their culture would expect that they respond. Not in a way that earns it, not in a way that pays for it, because that's impossible. You can't pay for the gift of grace. But a Jewish mindset would expect that when you're given such an incredible honor, there would be a willing and a voluntary response. And I think that is what Paul is talking about in Titus chapter two, when he says that this grace not only saves us, but it trains us. And that voluntary response to the gift can't be equal to it. It can't pay for it. But it is a willing response when you understand how good the gift is that you've received. That gift, of that, that, response, that requires a response. It's a response of holiness. It's a response of obedience. It's a response of love. It's a response of gratitude. And as Paul says, it's a response that walks away from ungodliness and worldly passions that lives self-controlled, upright, and godly in this present age. That we receive a gift, and then there is a response. You know, we're going to all go through the, the exercise around Christmas time. If there's young children in your homes that when they receive their Christmas gifts from their aunts or their uncles or their grandparents, parents all over this country and really all over the world have learned that they need to do something to their children after they receive a gift. They have to remind them what they're supposed to say, right? Is that just me? Is that just my kids that I'm the only one who has to remind them? Please, my kids are teenagers now, and sometimes I still have to say, hey, remember, say thank you. Now, all over this country, we know that we want our children to respond with a sense of gratitude when they're given a gift. We know that that thank you doesn't pay for the gift and it doesn't make them earn that gift, but it's simply a good response to show that you appreciate being given something. And our response with God is the same way, that we respond with that love and that gratitude for the gift that we've been given, not to earn it, not to pay for it, because that's impossible, but because we realize what it costs our Father to give us the gift of his son. And we respond with that offer of obedience, of a changed lifestyle, of saying, I want to follow your ways and not just my own. And we do it motivated by love. I'm so glad that when God gave us this gift, the gift that saves, he also gave us a gift that trains us that is active in our lives from the moment that we get saved until the moment we enter eternity with him. I mean, imagine the alternative, that if God would hand out salvation and he would say, okay, now your sins are forgiven, God lives in your heart, uh, you have been declared righteous, and one day you're gonna be with me in heaven. Okay, but now I gotta tell you something. The world out there, it's kinda, it's kinda messy. It's kind of broken. There's a lot of people that don't really follow me and it's gonna be hard to follow me. But if you make it, if you survive, 
if somehow you resist the temptation to sin and you maintain your faith for the rest of your life, I'll see you on the other side. I hope you make it. Good luck. Get in the game, kid. I mean, that would be a little bit shocking if God just gave us this amazing gift and then said, I hope to see you on the other side. Sometimes when we talk about salvation, that's the only part we talk about, though, about getting to heaven. And that's a big part. But the other aspect of salvation that is so great that we see with a God who wants to dwell with us. I heard that you did a series about that recently that was, that was pretty good. That we have a God who wants to dwell with us and on the way, he's active. He trains us. He helps us renounce ungodliness. He helps us to live self-controlled and upright lives. And he walks with us through the journey on this planet until finally at the end of our journey, we get to spend eternity with him. That's a God that gives us some amazing gifts. We have a gift that saves. We have a gift that trains And then the third thing that we can see from this gift is that we have a gift that strengthens us. A gift that strengthens us. And for that, I would like to uh, go to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. It's a passage that probably many of you are familiar with. It's actually a passage that Paul wrote towards the end of his life. And here is uh, what he talks about how he found that gift, the gift of grace, strengthening him during a particularly difficult time. Chapter 12, verse 7. So to keep me from being conceited, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. This thorn that Paul had in his flesh, whatever, whatever that was, it was uncomfortable enough that Paul was asking the Lord, please take this away. Please take this away. And he didn't just ask once. He pleaded with the Lord three times, please remove this from me. Now, biblical scholars have speculated what this thorn might be. Uh, some thought that it, it's Paul had bad eyesight because in, one, in some of his letters, he, he says, see what large letters I write with my own hand. Uh, maybe, but I think it, you, know, you could deal with bad eyesight. It seems like it might've been more than that. Other people think that maybe he had some stomach ailments because he, he gave some advice to Timothy on how to deal with his stomach ailments. Uh, some people actually think that Paul, all his ministry had some, some false teachers that were following him around and they were corrupting all the work that he had done. And it was just this constant thorn in his flesh. And he asked that God would just take this opposition to the gospel away. But whatever this thorn in the flesh was, we know that it was significant enough that Paul didn't just pull up his bootstraps and endure through it. He's like, God, take it away. Three times I asked the Lord, take it away. But God didn't answer this prayer. In verse nine, the response of the Lord to Paul says, not that I will take it away, but this is what he says. He said to me, my grace, the gift, is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness 
so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weakness, insults, hardship, persecutions, and calamity. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Three times he said, God, please remove this. And the answer from the Lord is, I'm going to give you what you need. I'm going to strengthen you so that you can endure. You know, sometimes God's answer to our prayer is not to give us exactly what we're asking for, but many times his answer to our prayer is to give us the strength to endure what we have to face on a broken planet. And in many ways, we, we, we know that God answers prayer, but he's the one who decides how he answers. Does he take away the thing that we don't like, or does he give us what we need to endure it? You know, in my years, uh, many of you know that I spent a number of years living uh, in South Africa, and one of the lessons, the life lessons that I learned from my African brothers and sisters was the way that they pray when difficult things happen to them. I noticed this very quickly because uh, when hardship, when life would strike, when even tragedy would happen, I noticed that my African brothers and sisters prayed a different prayer than I did as an American Christian. You know, growing up in America where life was generally good and whenever something difficult would happen, my prayer at least in my own life was, God, take this thing that I don't like, take it away, remove it, just get it out of here. Whether it was a financial hardship or a sickness or whatever it was, take it away. And you know, sometimes God does that. He does show up miraculously, he does heal, he does supernaturally provide. But there's other times when it seems like he doesn't, and you're, you're wondering, what's going on? And as I listen to the prayers of my African brothers and sisters, I realize that perhaps I'm praying a slightly incorrect prayer, that yes, I want that difficulty removed, but maybe I should pray a little bit more like Paul does, or that the answer that Paul gets in this particular chapter. My African brothers and sisters wouldn't pray for the hardship to be removed. They would pray for the strength to endure. Because for them, hardship was a part of normal life. If God took away every difficulty, he would be taking away every difficulty every day because so much of life was far more difficult than anything that I had experienced. And I learned from my African brothers and sisters that sometimes the best prayer to pray is yes, God can take it away, and maybe that's how he will strengthen us. But if it's not that, this side of heaven, we can always pray for the strength to endure, for the strength to endure, and it's that that we have the sufficiency of grace, that it's the grace that strengthened us. We never hear if the Apostle Paul had his thorn removed, but we know that he received the sufficiency of grace to endure what he needed to face. That's a prayer that I want to pray when difficult things come in our lives that we pray for that strength, the strength of the gift, the gift of grace. Now, as uh, I've studied this passage a little bit and I've looked at that word sufficient, you know, what, what that my grace is sufficient Okay, what, what exactly does that mean? Like, it's just, it's just enough to keep you hanging on by a thread? 
or it's just enough to keep you, like it's it almost, our English word sufficient kind of seems like, like it's just enough to survive. Like my income is sufficient, I'm not dead. You know, something like that. But sufficient here, actually, as you look into that word, it actually carries some, a bigger concept uh, that it is sufficient, but it, it's also this idea of it's exact, it's precise. And one of the unique definitions of this was something that caught my eye. It's precision cut, precision cut. That when Paul receives this promise that grace will be sufficient, God is actually saying, I'm gonna give you a precision cut amount of grace that is exactly specific for the situation that you're in. Isn't that a beautiful picture? That it's not just a generic gift. You know, we all know about generic gifts at Christmas time, right? That great aunt that gives everybody the same gift and nobody really likes it, right? Everybody gets the same thing. No, this is not that generic Christmas gift that we all just wanna hide away somewhere after Christmas. This is a unique, this is a specific, this is a precision cut gift of grace that is exactly tailored to the situation that we're facing. What an incredible gift that is. You know, as I think about that, that idea of precision cut, it reminds me uh, of an experience that I've had in my life. Uh, several years ago, I re- uh, got laser eye surgery for my eyesight. Uh, anybody else in here received laser eye surgery? Okay, so some of you can relate to this. Uh, well, I, I did it a number of years ago, and I'm sure technology has changed a little bit, but when I did, I went in to the doctor's office, and they had you know, done all the pre-testing, so they knew exactly what they needed to do, and they have you lie down in a chair, and then they say, are you nervous? And if you lie and say no, uh, <laughs> but then they, they say, well, let me, let me just, we're going to you know, give you a little something for your nerves anyway, and we're going to put these drops in your eyes that numb your eyes. So they do that. Uh, and then they begin the procedure. And the way that the procedure works, uh, just in basic terms, is they have to lift up your, the, the lens on your eye and then a laser reshapes your cornea. Okay, so you've got that moment, you know, where you can feel a little bit and you see them, they're doing something with your eye, and then they tell you, okay, we're, we're actually gonna pull back the lens so that we can get to your cornea. And you're not gonna be able to see clearly for a moment, but don't panic. Okay, that's really easy to say when you're not in the chair and it's not your eye, right? Don't panic. So they, you know, they, sorry if anybody's a little bit squeamish, but they lift up your lid and they're, they're gonna prepare to reshape your cornea. And in that moment, you're like, I can't see. What if this doesn't work? And then they say, okay, all you need to do is you need to look, look up at the laser, which it just looks like a light. And they say, look at the light and it's gonna reshape your eye. And it, then it makes this sound. It goes like, and you're like, there's a laser in my eyeball right now, but I'm trying to stay relaxed. <laughs> so I went through my one eye and that was you know, maybe 20 seconds that it had to, you know, that they needed to do that so that it, it could be reshaped. And they said, okay, everything's great. We're gonna move to the next eye. They do the same procedure. And they say, what, all you need to do is just keep looking at the light. So they say, okay, we're ready. And the machine starts, dee, 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 dee. and then and I just have this split second. I don't know exactly what happened, but all of a sudden I looked away. And I'm like, oh no. <laughs> I looked away. I'm just like, I have this mental picture of this like laser burning a, a, a cut halfway through my head and just, I'm gonna be made, scarred for life. And I, I looked away. And the doctor very calmly says, 
you looked away. And I'm like, I know I did. <laughs> he says, you looked away, look back. And what the amazing thing has happened, as soon as I looked away, the machine stopped. The computer noticed that I looked away and it stopped immediately when I looked away. And he says, okay, just take a couple of deep breaths. Everything's gonna be fine. Look at the light. And so I pulled myself back together and I, okay, I can do it. I looked at the light and the machine starts again. Deep, 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 deep. It finishes up. And you know, the doctor says, everything's fine. Let's go, let's finish up. And I'm like, but doc, I looked away. And he's like, Everything's gonna be fine, it's not a problem. The computer actually knows when you look away and it stops exactly when you look away and then when you look back, it picks it up right where we left off. And that idea that that machine is programmed in a precision cut way to reshape my eyes so that I can see again. And all I needed to do was to focus and to continue looking at the light. Now, when I went back for my follow-up the next day, they checked the one eye and it was 2020. I'm like, okay, yeah, but what about this eye? You know, and it was like 2015. So it was even better than perfect. So I don't know if, you know, that's a, a, a tip. Just look away in the middle of your surgery. Um, maybe you'll get some extra vision for your money. But I love that picture of the fact that that, that machine was so programmed to know exactly what needed to happen to, get, to give me the sight that I needed. It was set just to my eyes. And that precision cutness that that laser did with my eyes is the same grace that God will give us when we trust in him to give us the grace that strengthens, the gift that strengthens. He will give us a precision cut amount of grace for whatever situation we're facing. Even if we look away for a moment, even if we doubt in the middle of the process, if we turn our eyes back to the light, he will give us the grace that will strengthen us. Amen? Amen. The, number, the fourth thing that grace does for us and that this gift does comes from Galatians chapter five. It's a gift that guides, a gift that guides us. In the New Living Translation, Verse 25 says, since we are living by the Spirit, let us follow the Spirit's leading in every part of our lives. Other versions say, if we're living by the Spirit, let us be guided by the Spirit. And we know that part of this gift, part of the gift that we're given that we already found located in this bag is that God's Spirit comes to live in us. And so when we are saved and we have His Spirit living in us, we have a gift that's going to guide us, a gift that is going to help us through life, a gift that will get us where God wants us to go. You know, as I talk to a number of young people through the years, young people always want to know what God's will is for them. What college should I go to? Of course, young people always want to know, who am I going to marry? God, please tell me. Just like shine that light out of heaven on that girl or that guy that's for me. Let me know, guide me in this. And I've seen many, many Christians get so worked up about what the will of God is for their life. And scripture's actually pretty simple. That scripture says, if you wanna be guided, if you want to be led, live with the spirit. Live a life trusting in him, depending on him, relying on him. 
Don't live in the flesh. That's the contrast that Paul uses in Galatians and in Romans. Don't trust in ourselves and our own abilities. Trust in him. Paul actually says, you were saved by the Spirit. Why would you not trust him to lead you and guide you? That our salvation was all an act of God and our guidance is also an act of God. I actually think it's more difficult to get out of the will of God than we think. Because if we're looking at Jesus, if we're being led by the Spirit and we're moving in a certain direction and somehow we start going a little bit off, if we're focused on God, he's big enough to turn our head, to, to move our steps back into that place that he wants us to go. That what we need to do is we need to walk and look to Jesus. Remember that famous passage in, in Hebrews that it talks about running the race? And as we're running that race, who are we looking at? We're looking at Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. And as we do that, Hebrews says, we lay aside every weight and sin that so easily entangles. Hebrews doesn't tell us to run looking at the weight and sin. If you run while you're looking at your feet, how's that going to end up? Anybody, I mean, you can try this razor runner. He's probably tried. If you run looking at your feet, you're eventually going to run into a wall. I don't think Ray has done that. But you've got to run looking at the prize. You've got to look at where you're going. And so as we do, as we are guided by this gift of grace, we run the race. Look into Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. And along the way, we lay aside every weight and every sin. So the gift that we are given, the gift of grace, it saves, it trains, it strengthens, and it guides. And I want to close actually by going back to some of the things that I found in my study of, of Christmas and, and some of the ways that this gift-giving perspective began to come. And, and after the, the idea of giving gifts came, some of the ways that the, this was interpreted early on is that it was interpreted that the, those serving under the rulers should give gifts to the rulers, that they should give gifts to their superior. And many times rulers began exist, insisting on receiving of gifts. But this part of the tradition changed around the time of the Protestant Reformation, around the time when that idea of grace was brought back to the minds of the church. And at that time, they began giving gifts not to people that had a higher standing in society, but they began giving gifts to people that had a lower standing in society. This is where the idea of giving gifts to children came. This is where the idea of helping out the poor and needy came, was from a resurgence of the understanding of what the original gift was, that it was a gift of grace. That came back to the church's forefront in their view in the Protestant Reformation. And one of the things that also changed this was the popularity of a story that was told during this time. And it was the story of good King Wenceslas. You might Remember that there is a Christmas song by that name. We don't sing it very often, probably because it's so hard to say Wenceslas. I practice that a lot. But this historical figure, King Wenceslas, a song was wrote about him 
And it's a Christmas carol that tells the story of this king who goes on a journey, braving a very harsh winter. And the point of his journey is to give alms to a poor peasant. This is around Christmas time. And it was the popularity of this story that also then started bringing in this true meaning of what gift giving was supposed to be, not to the kings that already had plenty, but to those in need. And the story goes on that during this journey, as he was going through the harsh winter season to give gifts to this poor peasant, his assistant that was walking with him was about to give up the struggle. But he is actually enabled to continue on this journey when good king Wenceslas tells him to step where he steps, to put his feet into the snow footsteps that he is leaving, and that is how they will both be able to arrive in order to give the gift to those in need. And it's this legend that began to spread along with the resurgence of the idea of grace that really helped us to establish that Christmas gift giving is meant to be one of cheerfulness and joy and generosity. And we don't give to those because we're trying to get something or because they have a high position, but we give willingly. And that is actually a reflection of the gospel. Because our King Jesus didn't just go and give this gift to those who were in power, he gave it to his children. And he gave it to those who were stuck in the poverty of sin and darkness, much like good King Wenceslas. He gave us the ultimate gift of salvation, of a gift that trains, of a gift that strengthens, and a gift that guides. And our job is to respond like the assistant of King Wenceslas did. Our job is to step in the footsteps of our king. That where he steps, we step. Our job is also that when life gets harder, we get distracted, that we return our gaze back to the light. So this Christmas season, whether we follow in the footsteps of Jesus or whether we focus on keeping our eyes on the light, let's allow the gift-giving season to remind us of the ultimate gift and that we are so grateful for the incredible gift that Jesus gave us that we willingly respond through obedience, through love, through generosity, through living a holy lifestyle. Not that we can ever pay for this gift, but because we are truly grateful and we step where he steps. We look at the light as we walk on this journey with the gift that saves, that trains, that strengthens, and that guides. Amen? Amen. Let me pray for us today in this Christmas season. So Lord, we thank you so much for the gift of your son, that you initiated this idea of giving gifts, and we are so grateful for the ultimate gift. God, as we reflect on that this Christmas, as we give gifts, May you deepen our love for you and may you deepen our response to you in the appropriate ways because we love you and we're grateful for you. Thank you. Thank you, King Jesus, for the gift that you've given us. Everybody said? Amen. 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 Merry Christmas.